So in following on, this is kind of a part two in the series, looking into the number of young men that are being found after disappearing, sometimes for days or weeks or months, and then being found in water, with no real explanation as to how or why they got there. Most of them are ruled as accidental drowning, sometimes suicide, but the events around their disappearances leading up to them being found are in very many cases, highly suspicious. I'm going back now to 1998, when the New York Daily News featured three deaths in which the young men were all ruled to have drowned. The newspaper said, they are cases tinged with mystery that captured the sympathy of a city. When each vanished, their parents conducted highly publicised searches for them. Three were found floating in the river, with no apparent signs of trauma. How each entered the water has not been determined. My boy was murdered. It wasn't an accident, said Gitty Bender. Her son Joshua was found in the Hudson River nearly two weeks after he'd left his yeshiva, university dorm. At the time, Robert Martin, the deputy inspector of police, did admit that he found the circumstances strange. He said it is a little unusual to have three males in the river of the same age, but he also said they had found no overlapping commonalities other than that, although they would continue to work it, he said. While the newspaper did contact the FBI, a spokesman for the FBI was quoted as saying, that they would not be involved in any of the investigations because, quote, there is no evidence of a serial killer at work here. It would seem then, at this stage, no one yet was considering it could be the work of a group. I mentioned earlier in the other podcast episode that Josh Stossack's father, another victim, and the partner that he works with, who is a retired ex-federal agent, and they've worked on these cases for many years, compiling dossiers and evidence. Well, the ex-agent stands in the shadows, but he holds an astonishing amount of information about these perpetrators. He managed to trace a truck to the Midwest with a link to the cases in New York. So perhaps we should go to the Midwest now. It was in the Midwest that Chris Jenkins, a very popular student at the University of Minnesota, and ironically, as many victims are, was also on the college swim team, disappeared one night in 2003. When his body was discovered in the Mississippi River four months after he disappeared, to the police, his death looked like an accidental fall in the river after a night of drinking. And yet, very disturbingly, his body was found encased in ice, with his hands folded over his chest as though he was in a coffin, and in a manner that is wholly inconsistent with the official verdict of drowning. People drowning do not end up in this position nor do they end up like Todd Geib in Michigan, who was found bobbing upright in the water, although he was dead. 
or many others found floating face up, or like Tommy Booth in Pennsylvania, who was found in water with his body positioned deliberately and held in place by sticks. Though Chris Jenkins' body was supposed to have been in the water for four months, his shirt was still tucked into his pants, and the slip-on shoes he had worn that night, as part of his Halloween costume, were still on his feet. In the fast-flowing Mississippi River, a feat which would seem completely impossible, and surely, if he had fallen in, he would have been frantically struggling to save himself from drowning. This is reminiscent of another case, that of Dan Zamlin, who also ended up dead in the Mississippi River. He was missing for almost a month, yet, as his mother pointed out, his diabetic pod was still around his neck when he was found, and had not floated off, despite the currents of the river being particularly strong when he was found. The drug, GHB. Often called the date rape drug in England, was found in both of their systems. After justified protest from his family, which took many years, Chris Jenkins' death was reclassified as homicide. Does it mean anything that Chris Jenkins disappeared on Halloween? Halloween is Samhain, the night of the witch in the old Celtic calendar. Samhain is the pagan time when the veil between the worlds is at its thinnest, and those who have departed this world may return to it once more for a bittersweet reunion with those still living. However, when the door to the pagan summerland is opened for the souls of the dead to enter, entities of evil may enter into our dimension too. It can be a covenant with hell itself. In occult ritual, it is an invitation. To the entities of darkness to approach. The rituals of the ancient druids were hellish on this night of the year. Human sacrifices of the firstborn have been noted in ancient literature on this night. In early Irish literature, poetry and prose of the law of the land, written from the twelfth century onwards, it mentions the horrifying practice of the killing of the firstborn. As the eve of Samhain grew closer, it was a time of dread and intense danger for all families. Once the child was chosen, they were sacrificed, and their blood would be drunk and their flesh eaten. This ritual was a devout act, according to the Roman author Pliny the Elder in his book *The Natural Histories: Remedies Derived from Living Creatures*, written around A.D. seventy. It says to murder was an act of the greatest devoutness, and to eat his flesh most beneficial. The druids counted it an honourable thing. Chris Jenkins disappeared while still dressed in his Halloween costume after being kicked out of the bar he was drinking in, the Lone Tree Bar and Grill in downtown Minneapolis, for allegedly being disruptive. He was left outside without his coat or wallet. Tracker dogs hired privately by the family traced his scent to a parking garage. It appeared that he had been abducted, bundled into a van, and driven away to his terrible fate. 
He had been clutching pieces of his own hair. That too is said to be of an occult meaning. And yet this may have nothing to do with the occult at all. Things really are not that simple. On the day of his memorial service, a woman phoned the priest conducting the memorial service to say that she'd seen something written over one of Chris's missing persons posters at a bus stop. Someone had written, Loaded into SUV, paid in dollars green. The drug GHB was found in his system. He'd never been known to take drugs. His mother said, The evil is rampant, deep and widespread. He was abducted, driven around for hours and tortured, then taken to the river and killed. Then his body was positioned and taken to a different part of the river and left there. An hour away and a year earlier, student Joshua Gimon disappeared. He was a student at the College of St. Benedict's and St. John's in Eau Claire, Minnesota. It was Saturday, November the 9th, 2002. He was last seen at his dorms on campus. Private tracker dogs, which were brought in by his family, traced his scent to a pond behind St. John's Abbey, next door to the university. Though the pond was examined with sonar, he was not in the water. He's never been found. Joshua disappeared just before he was due to present a mock trial on the alleged abuse carried out by clergy associated with his university, who resided at the abbey next door. In 2004, the Friends of Joshua presented a paper to their university, remarked, when presenting their paper, that if he had not disappeared, he would have been graduating with them all. They wrote, Bodies don't just disappear unless someone makes them, and feasible alternatives are running thin. Explanations have become laughable. The prevalent explanation is that he somehow got lost after a night of drinking, ending up in the campus lake. They point out, the Trident Foundation is the leading authority on search and rescue in water, and they cleared all the bodies of water on the campus. Quoting the head of the search organisation, they say, This private search and rescue team have never searched a lake, and then later found a body. In other words, they've never missed a body that was there in the water. They've always found one if one was there. Scott Rom, the director, added, I would recommend the search heads in another direction. Our technology provides very high degrees of reassurance that he is somewhere else. Josh was last seen leaving a dorm room, just a couple of minutes' walk from his own dorm, but he never reached his own room. He didn't have glasses on, he had no coat and no car. It didn't seem that he would have been heading out anywhere far. What's extremely strange is that the tracker dog that picked up his scent that led to the pond behind the abbey also picked up another boy's scent. Chris Jenkins, 
the University of Minnesota student just discussed, who disappeared on Halloween in downtown Minneapolis, and who'd later be found dead in the Mississippi River with his arms folded across his body. He'd been kicked out of the Lone Tree Bar and Grill in downtown Minneapolis. He'd never been to this college campus in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, an hour's drive away. Yet his scent was detected there. Another student, Jared Dion, again like the other young men, was a popular and athletic student. He was discovered in the river near Wisconsin University in 2004, five days after he disappeared. His baseball cap was found very close by in Riverside Park by a group of joggers. According to them, the baseball cap was casually hanging on a post not far from where police believed the young man must have jumped in or fallen into the river. At a later autopsy, it was found that he had been moved ten hours prior to his death. He could not have been dead any longer than 72 hours. Meaning, he'd been alive for some time prior to his death and had not died the day of his disappearance. Two days were unaccounted for, which again implies that he had been kept somewhere and placed in the water later. It also implied he could have been drowned elsewhere. The source for these details about him come from the book Case Studies in Drowning Forensics by Kevin Gannon and Professor Lee Gilbertson. Pathologists don't always routinely test if the water found in the lungs is from the same open source water in which they are found. He could have been drowned in a bathtub or in a van driven around with a specially made water compartment in the back of it. Jared was dead before he entered the water. As one anonymous commentator says, they are drowned elsewhere and dumped after the drug is out of their system. That's why a lot of the victims are found in areas that have already been searched. An ME isn't always capable of knowing which body of water the victim drowned in. They could all have been drowned in baths, but as the killers seem to be so mobile, I think it's more that they are using a white panel van with a tank of water in the back, coming from a guy who knows more about these murders than anyone living. Why would he say that last sentence? Is he pretending to have inside knowledge of the killers? Or is he just someone pretending to know what's going on? Is it a brag or a taunt coming from someone involved? Or just a fantasist? But could this be how they're doing it? Bodies have been found in different states at the same time. It cannot possibly be the work of just one man. While it's certainly possible, and indeed likely, that some of these cases of the 300 plus deaths are accidental, or victim of murder, unrelated completely to the idea that there are a group or groups going around doing this. However, the overwhelming majority of these cases do seem to be connected. Jared had last been seen in a bar where he told a friend he was going to a party afterward. He was seen talking to a blonde, but it was never determined if this was a male or female, and they've never been identified. 
He was found in the opposite direction to which he had told his friends he was heading. He was alive for three days after his disappearance. He was drowned, but he didn't drown in the river. He was held, kept alive for three days, drowned, then taken to the river and placed into it. His autopsy results showed no pink froth, according to retired Kevin Gannon, and this indicated that there was no struggle to save himself from being drowned. In a struggle to survive while drowning, the blood vessels in the lungs will burst and seep blood into the body. This did not happen when he drowned. There was no struggle. These young men are not trying to save themselves, and yet, as Professor Craig Jackson in England says and he's spoken out about the Manchester cases in England, which we will get to in another podcast. He says, suicide by drowning accounts for only 4% of suicides. It's not a popular method. Requires the person to weigh themselves down with something, and invariably the natural survival instinct will kick in, and they will save themselves from drowning. None of these college boys are trying to save themselves. Why is this? because they are often dead or unconscious before they even enter the water, in all possibility. There is a possibility that some victims' clothes have been tampered with prior to being found, sometimes being put back on their bodies the wrong way, for example, or missing, suggesting that they were removed by someone. Is it a gang of serial killers, a syndicate of some kind, a cult, an organised group that has crisscrossed America travelling to college campuses in different cities, in a dozen different states and an ever-increasing murder spree? It would almost seem as though the men are being deliberately targeted. Why are many of the bodies returned to the area previously searched? Do the killers enjoy this so much that they like to tease and taunt law enforcement? Most likely it is the work of some kind of organised gang. This is the belief of gang-stalking expert Professor Gilbertson. That is his opinion, based on thorough scrutiny of the individual cases, the identical victim type, in the early days, and what he believes is their abduction, confinement and subsequent death by drowning. But why death by drowning? Why this particular method? When I was talking to Professor Gilbertson, back in 2014, he raised concerns that the unexplained phenomenon of identical young men ending up dead seemed to have spread to England too. I'd been looking at the cases in Manchester, and at the time I wasn't convinced that they actually tallied with the US cases. And I do still think there is a big discrepancy between the actual Manchester cases and the US ones. There is a big difference, but we'll get to those in another podcast. Well, Professor Greg Jackson, head of psychology at the University of Birmingham in England, has officially joined the growing number of people who are perturbed, alarmed and feel there is something more sinister at play than accidental drowning after more than 85 men in the last five years have been found dead in the canals and ponds of the northern city of Manchester. Talking to the broadsheet The Telegraph, he says, The number is far higher than one would expect, and from the data I just don't believe these were suicides. 
Canals are not a popular site for suicide, and people rarely choose this for their method. But they make ideal grounds for predators. Many of the reports from the coroners are inconclusive. Well, it is especially difficult to commit suicide in shallow water, and some of the canals there are less than knee deep. Are there any clues which could help explain what has happened to these young men, and why? Why have some of their bodies been placed into positions which are wholly inconsistent with that of a drowning victim? Why are their cell phones often found beside the river's edge? Again, as they purposely placed there. Why are many of them found missing one shoe? Why are some of the bodies found half in and half out of the water, like Henry McCabe? Like Mike Knowles, why do some of the toxicology reports show drugs like GHB in their systems when the boys were never known to have taken drugs? Why have they not fought back or struggled? Very often, they have no injuries whatsoever, indicating that they have not struggled at all, even though they were drowning, or not, as the case may be. Obviously, the very sinister implication is that they were either unconscious or dead when they entered the water. Some even have no water at all in their lungs, yet they have apparently drowned in the water. When found, their bodies are often not in the condition they would be expected to be. Sometimes their deaths are ruled inconclusive or undetermined. Sometimes the pathologists openly rule that the cause of death will probably never be determined, which itself is highly alarming, given that law enforcement then refuse to follow up on the cases and investigate them. They are just said to have simply drowned, somehow. The original retired detectives who investigated over a decade ago found that in some of these cases, the young men had been held. Drugged, mentally tortured, physically tortured, killed, and then taken to the water and placed in it. Strangely, a common factor is that many times the young men have been seen in the presence of not only unknown young people, but cops and bouncers too. Nothing strange there, perhaps, but maybe it's not that clear cut. Several of the men have even phoned friends to say. That someone or people are after them, that they are in fear for their lives, and that they haven't done anything wrong. So who's after them? And does this implicate the police, or perhaps people pretending to be the police, or pretending to be bouncers or barmen? Why are there stories floating around of possible near misses, in which young men describe attempts by strangers to lure them outside? Why do some of the parents of the deceased young men talk about the unknown people being at the scene of their disappearance, of strangers chasing them, of them being terrified for their lives? Why do many of them make desperate phone calls just moments before something happens to them? Why are some of them in such a state of terror or horror when they phone their parents or friends? Why would their cell phones suddenly go dead? After they've said something very disturbing, what are they seeing in the final moments before their phone cut off?
Why does the leading criminologist say this is terrorism? They operate as cells. Why was a message left saying loaded in van, paid in dollars? Is this some form of human trafficking? For many, have not yet been found at all. Why were priests at an abbey where one victim disappeared describing an occult drowning ritual on an esoteric forum? Are the people who are doing this communicating online? Are cryptic or bragging messages being left that we've overlooked? Is this all wild imagination and hyperbole and exaggeration? Or is it simply desperate attempts to find answers? Perhaps the simplest answer comes from Vance Holmes, who has followed these cases for many years, when they first started, or when they were believed to have started. So on his blog, he asks, how would the young man even have been able of getting to the river in which he was found drowned, given his state of intoxication? So whereas some victims have not drunk very much at all, some have drunk an incredible amount or appear to be extremely drunk. Although this is suspicious itself. So he asks, in an article he says, too drunk to drown, <clears throat> he says of 21-year-old victim Lucas Homan, how did he end up dead in the Mississippi River? He says, I understand he may have been drinking. I understand he may have stumbled away from his friends unnoticed. I understand that at the water's edge he may have accidentally fallen in. What I don't understand is how he got to the river in the first place. His blood alcohol was 0.32. Holmes then quotes from a guide provided by a breath-testing company, citing the symptoms of anyone who has a blood alcohol reading in the range of 0.25 to 0.40. They are as follows, inability to stand or walk, Stupor, loss of motor functions, impaired consciousness, sleep or stupor. How then did Lucas get to the river at all, he asks, with incredulity. The estimated number of cases of young men going missing and being found dead in rivers, canals, ponds, is now well over 300, according to several profilers I'm in contact with. The predominant cases are those where young men have been kicked out of bars by bouncers, yet it often later turns out that they've invariably been wrongly accused of being drunk or disorderly. Then they are found dead in water days, weeks, or even months later, or perhaps not at all. Some have been drinking and are drunk, many others are not drunk in any way and had no alcohol in their system. Those who have been found to be drunk are excessively drunk, so much so that it would seem impossible for them to have walked to the remote water where they are found dead weeks or months later. Many have appeared so disoriented and confused that they have quickly had to leave the bar or party they're attending. Some have later been found to have had drugs in their system, drugs their close friends say they would never take. Again, it can easily be dismissed as youth and misadventure. But there have been many cases where disorientation takes place so quickly and so suddenly that the suggestion is their drinks are being tampered with or they're possibly being injected. In several cases, MDMA or GHB or sedatives 
had been found in their systems. None of the young men were ever known to have been taking these drugs, nor were they prescribed any sedatives. How does a young man go from being fine one moment, then suddenly, quickly disoriented and confused the next, then disappear, and then end up dead in water? Sometimes water that's only a couple of feet deep, even inches deep. Why would he go to the most remote body of water, always in the opposite direction to that which he was heading? Of the young men who were kicked out, very often for reasons which are either spurious and false, or later flatly denied, why are these young men purposely separated from their friends? Who is deliberately separating them from their friends, leaving them isolated and vulnerable? Often left outside without their wallets or coats in winter, and then later found in bodies of water. Strangely and suspiciously, this seldom happens in the spring or summer, and yet, they would be the most likely times for an impromptu swim. In almost every case, why have even those who have had nothing at all to drink? Walked in the exact opposite direction to that which they told their friends they were heading, back home. So are they walking, or are they being led? In 2011, Mike Shaw wrote of the grief, the anger, and the sense of helplessness he felt because he could not save his best friend. He writes, "Sly McCurry did not walk out onto the ice of Lake Superior." That cold January 2010, winter night, and fall through and drown. He was murdered. No one can ever convince me it was anything but murder. He was more than a friend to me. His smile would light up a room. He was always full of life, always happy. He would never have went from the nightclub to that secluded area alone in 20 degrees below weather, with no coat, and drown. He had no car, and after being thrown out of the club via the back door, on the alleged grounds that he was drunk, he was left in the alleyway. Four months later, his body was found in the lake. I was a trained fighter for many years and felt protective over my friends. I've never received closure. His death was ruled accidental, due to cold water immersion. His scent stopped. At the back of the hotel, like clockwork, I see these killers strike all over the northeast. He says, "How do some of them end up dead in water? Often, having apparently climbed over high fences and jumped into ponds or retention tanks just a few inches deep, and forgotten how to swim. How do very fit wrestlers, sportsmen, and most notably?" Young men on swim teams end up dead in shallow water, only inches deep, having suddenly become unable to swim. We have the terrible case of Walton Ward. His sister says her brother also died in inexplicable, mysterious, and terrible circumstances. She says Walton was last seen alive at Landshark's Bar, Indianapolis, with a bouncer at approximately one twenty to one thirty a.m. On October the twelfth, two thousand and twelve, his last attempt to save his own life was at one thirty a.m.
when he dialed 911 from his phone for help. His killers interrupted his 911 call and murdered him. He knew he was going to be killed. His desperate call lasted for one second, which was just enough to register to the nearest cell phone tower, but it wasn't long enough to save his life. That was the last time we knew him to be alive, until construction workers discovered his body on October the 22nd, floating in the river a few blocks from the bar ten days after his desperate call to 911 on that night. His phone was found on the bank of the river behind a restaurant. The police said he must have been drunk, fallen in, or gone swimming in the dead of winter. Authorities ruled that he had died of asphyxia due to drowning. The thing was, her brother was a Muay Thai fighter. He knew how to look after himself, and yet he too died. He drowned in just inches of water. Why have many victims made very disturbing phone calls after they disappear? Why are several of them screaming down the phone before their phone goes dead? What are they seeing? Who or what is there with them causing them such uncontrollable terror? Well, I'll continue on in the next podcast to reveal more.